Please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We'll continue our series through this incredibly helpful little letter that Paul wrote to his son in the faith, this young minister. He's encouraging and exhorting and instructing. And God expects us to learn right along with Titus when this was written. All the same things because God doesn't change and human nature fundamentally doesn't change. And so we have just as much to learn as Titus in this church in Crete did when it was originally written. Let's pray. Lord, we've been just now singing some just incredible prayers as we were singing. Um, Let us be a generation that seeks you, O God of Jacob. Give us clean hands and pure hearts. When we see your holiness, transform us into that holiness. Lord, these are mind-blowing promises and requests we've been making of you. Lord, if it weren't for your incredible power, amazing grace, we couldn't even begin to think this was possible. But we're grateful that not only is it possible, but you have been doing this very work in the lives of your people uh, throughout the centuries and are still doing it. So Lord, would you help us now as we go to this letter and these two verses from it this morning to learn everything you have for us. And I pray, indeed, we would be transformed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus 1, verses 15 and 16. He's been encouraging this church in Crete, a decadent place, and this leader of that church. He tells them to appoint elders. They need to have character qualities and abilities to teach the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to guide this flock, shepherd this flock, help this flock in all the ways they need them to. And now we come to the end of chapter 1 with just these two verses that we'll preach out of this morning. Titus 1.15 To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow. A lot going on here. Paul is telling us that there are two kinds of people. There are pure people, impure people. There are people who are fit for good works and there are people who are not fit for good works. He's telling us that there are some people characterized by defilement and defiling effect among others. There are those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. There are those who have their minds and consciences defiled and those who don't. There are those who profess to know God and back it up by their works, and there are those who profess to know God and deny Him by their works. Wow. I thought you weren't supposed to talk about people like this. 
What he's after is integrity. There's an old expression that has been used for a long time, and it's a really important one. And I learned the truth of this expression when I was 16 years old, and I'll tell you what it is in a second. I was 16. And I was never motivated to get a job. I think this was actually the first job. No, I flipped burgers at Wendy's before this. But this was, I guess, my second job. And I wanted a bike. I had always had bikes that I made from other bikes that had been thrown out and things. And, and I wanted a nice bike. I was 16. I figured it's time I have a good bike that actually works reliably. And so I, I knew the bike I wanted. It was a gold Univega racing bike. And it was $120. And I said, how am I going to get $120? And I looked out the window of my bedroom, and I saw my neighbor's yard there in Connecticut with this long, three-sided, white picket fence. And I noticed it needed a paint job. So I went over to the neighbor's house, and I knocked on the door. She answered, and I said, I was noticing your fence needs a paint job, and I was wondering if you would give me a job painting your fence. And she said, hmm. How much? And I said, $120. And she said, okay. And I said, boom. Two weeks max, I'm going to be riding that racing bike, that Univega gold racing bike. And so I went and I got my dad's scraper out of his shed. And I said, here I go. And I went and I started scraping the first picket on that fence. And I realized that the paint was covering a complete absence of wood. The paint just crumbled when I did that. And, and th there wasn't really wood underneath the paint. The, the paint was just was covering it over. And I said, oh no. And I went to the next picket and I scraped the same thing. And suddenly I realized this was not a $120 job. I had taken on so much because I had just gone off the appearance of the fence and it wasn't what it appeared to be. And the expression that I learned so true is things are not always what they seem. Appearances can be deceiving. I learned that. And I've learned that lots of times in my life. And I, I try to help my kids learn that too. I'll never forget after we adopted Caroline. She was eight. She barely knew English. I think it was the first time we ever drove on the five into L.A. And we were on this trip. And this little girl in the back who could barely speak English suddenly went, Oh, what is that? And I said, What? What? And I looked back and she's pointing like this, saying, what is that? And I looked over, and you know what it was? <laughs> and now I'm sitting there trying to get my daughter to realize that what looks like an Assyrian palace <laughs> is actually an outlet mall. I actually did a little research on this thing. It was built in the 20s. Do you know what it originally was? A tire factory. 
And that's how they built. They said, we're going to have the most souped-up tire factory you've ever seen. It was the 20s when this whole Hollywood, L.A. thing was going, and the City of Commerce decides to build this, this tire factory, which is now an outlet mall. You know, it's just kind of switched the kind of rubber. Tire rubber, and now it's rubber on your sketchers. You're buying at half price in the outlet mall, right? Uh, and it's amazing to me that I'm sitting there thinking, honey, that is not actually an Assyrian palace. That's an outlet mall. It's not what it appears to be. And I thought, this might be a good time to teach her a word from French. Facade. Right? Something on the surface that looks really impressive, but once you get behind it, it's just an outlet mall. Now, sadly... A lot of people are pretty pumped about outlet malls more than they should be. So that's another issue maybe, but maybe not actually. Let me think about that. Um, but superficial appearance is often incredibly deceptive. And that's what we need to realize. And as I, as I explained it to Caroline and we kept driving down the five, I just, I just thought, wow, this kid just moved from Taiwan in some tough circumstances to Los Angeles. Southern California, the home of facades. <laughs> I mean, we have, we have gotten the, the science of superficial appearance, the art of superficial appearance down maybe better than any subculture in the history of the world, right? And I thought, I am going to have to help my little girl realize that she lives in a world that is constantly emphasizing and glorifying and valuing just what's on the surface. And she needs to know that that's not reality a lot of the time. And in this letter, Paul wants Titus in that church and us this morning to realize that things aren't always what they seem. That superficial appearance, that superficial means of assessing success or importance or value are often incredibly misleading. Could this be more relevant in the church in America where we just love celebrities? We just love impressive things. And I think it may be worse here than anywhere else in the country. I moved here, uh, grew up in the Northeast, and everybody identified, not everybody, but most people identify their church by the big name pastor or worship leader that they, they affiliate themselves with. And when people would say, oh, our pastor is so-and-so, and I'd say, who? They looked at me like, I must not be a Christian. Or, oh, our worship leader. And I'm not placing them. Really? Oh. It's very strange where we have these superficial things that can be so impressive externally, but if you dig, if you really dig, if you really find out what's going on, it's hollow. There's nothing underneath the surface, even though it appears to be so impressive on the outside. And that, that's what Paul is not just combating here at the church in in Crete, but at Corinth, especially when he writes to the Corinthians, he is, he is combating these leaders in Corinth who are so superficially impressive, and he seems like nothing. And so he tries to help them realize that things aren't always what they seem. And that's what we need to realize 
this morning. So he contrasts two kinds of people. Yeah, I guess, I guess God sees things clearly enough to be able to actually talk about people as one kind or another. It's pretty stunning. But Jesus does this too. Jesus talks about people who look good on the surface, but they're not his people. They're not real Christians. They're not real believers. This is how he puts it in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Apostle John puts it this way. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Well, what do you really think, John? And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps my word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. Well, in other words, he needs to have integrity. What's on the surface needs to be backed up by what's underneath the surface. The walk needs to back up the talk. The behavior needs to represent the beliefs. The profession to know God needs to show itself in the activity of the kinds of works those who know God practice. Two kinds of people, pure and corrupt. Is this an us-then mentality? I know it might be so hard for you sitting there right now to say, I knew it. Here I am. I come to church, pretty skeptical of Christians, pretty skeptical of the church, been burned in the past, and here this guy gets up and he's talking about this us-them mentality. Who's in, who's out. I thought Jesus was about unity. I thought Jesus was about loving everybody. I thought Jesus was about tolerance. And now you're saying there's some club and then there are those who aren't in the club. That doesn't sound Christian to me at all. That sounds actually pretty smug and self-righteous. And I completely understand why you think that. I do. I do. I completely understand why saying there are some who are pure and some who are impure, some who are corrupt and some who aren't, some are fit for good works and some aren't, sounds so exclusive and so arrogant. And, and you're saying to yourself, oh, and I suppose you preacher are one of those in people? That's what this is about? Just deciding who's in and who's out? But here's what you need to know. One, the Bible talks this way all the time. The Bible talks about sheep and goats. The Bible talks about children of light and children of darkness. The Bible talks about those who are children of God and those who are children of wrath. The Bible talks about those who are walking in the light and still walking in darkness. The Bible talks about those who have God as their father and who still, those who still have God who is Satan, who's the father of lies. I mean, the Bible does this all the time, but here's what you need to know to keep you from your stereotype about Christians and, and why we think this way. Any Christian who's getting this right knows that if they are a child of light instead of a child of darkness, they were a child of darkness. And the only reason they're not anymore is because God is so amazingly gracious. Any Christian who really gets this knows that he or she did not bring this about. It is by grace through faith so that no one may boast. And if you've met Christians who really were Christians, you got to make sure that's the case. But if they really are and they have forgotten this for a time that you knew them, 
Realize the problem is not in the good news of Jesus Christ, but that sometimes Christians forget the grace of the gospel. And yeah, we can start trying to earn God's approval, and we can start thinking we're pretty special because we're children of God, but that is so counter to the true gospel. And so the Bible talks this way all the time, but please know the difference between the children of light and the children of darkness, those who are defiled and those who aren't, those who are pure and those who are impure is all by grace. It couldn't be more by grace than it is. And Titus even says it. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then what does that lead to? Training us. So it takes practice. It just doesn't happen automatically or all at once. It won't happen completely until we see Jesus face to face. But when we become children of God, when we have by the Spirit implanted in us a purity, a Godwardness, a godliness that starts to grow, we begin the process of training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right now. Before we're completely conformed to the image of Christ, Christ, we begin now being conformed to the image of Christ. Until what happens? Verse 13, waiting for the glory of our great God and Savior. Waiting for the appearing of our blessed hope. Jesus returns, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How does all this come about? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So the process of growing in purity, growing in being undefiled, growing in being able to do good works that are honoring to God begins with God's amazing grace that takes root in our lives. And that begins the process of working out that salvation that's ours by faith alone in Christ, but it's a working out. It's a, as Paul says in Philippians, living up to what we've already attained. And so it's by grace. And so it's all over the Bible. We can't get away from it with some sort of unity language and the fatherhood of God and the brother of the man. And we're all, oh, I'm no better than you. Well, I'm not better and it's not of me, but, but I'm a child of light. I have every, every heavenly blessing and, and, and heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're a child of God, you have adoption and righteousness You have no longer any slavery to sin. You don't answer to Satan or sin anymore. You answer to God who set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's the truth about you now. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, that's not the truth about you now. And that's not some elite self-righteous statement. It's not that at all. And the last thing I want you to know about this us-them thing There is an us-them here, but not with all the negative stuff we usually read into that. The other thing is, nobody's beyond this. I mean, even the guys, he's calling out as strongly as he can. What's all this for? So that they may become sound in faith, verse 13. Rebuke them sharply, because I have no use for them, no. No that they may be sound in faith, that they may be brought 
around and come to see the truth of the glorious grace of the gospel and then teach what doesn't pollute themselves and other people but teach what brings a purity in themselves and other people and that's the difference here it's the gospel see it's it's they're not getting the gospel right as we've seen in previous passages as we've been preaching the problem is not saying oh live however you want Go, you get, get drunk tonight and sleep with somebody who's not your wife. No, it, it, they're saying actually sort of the opposite but equally problematic thing. It's, oh no, you need to add something to what Jesus did. He calls them those of the circumcision, especially they're ticking them off. Like it ticked Paul off when the Galatians had these Judaizers that were adding something to the gospel. They didn't get grace. So the last thing I want to do is preach the need for us to grow in purity and holiness and somehow miss grace. We're not going to do that. But we're going to preach the need to grow in godliness and have integrity. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it had been a perfectly integrated world. God and Himself. God with creation. Humans with God. Humans with humans, and when we rebelled against our Creator, everything got disintegrated, and we've been like that ever since, and the people of God are the ones who start to live more and more integrated lives and have integrity where who we are now in Christ is showing up progressively in our lives as we grow in godliness. There really are two kinds of people. And I want you to know if you are a child of God, if you have been brought out of darkness, and if you're not a child of God, I want you to know basically the same thing. You are never stuck where you are. You're never stuck where life seems to have dropped you off. You are never stuck based on some teaching of psychology that says, well, this is just who you are and how you are. And there is this radical idol of today which hyper-validates personal subjective experience as what's real. Even if it completely contradicts what God says is real. Now, on the surface, that sounds affirming and encouraging and self-actualizing. You know, you do you, you be you, you live your truth. You're awesome. Don't ever think you need a change at all. That sounds really affirming, but it's a death sentence. You stay right there right in your deadness. And what else would Satan want you to believe than that you don't need any help outside of yourself? These lies that sound superficially self-affirming. All the truth is within you. All you need to do is find it in yourself. You hear this constantly from people who are well-intentioned and terribly wrong. We need to constantly go to God's word and trade in all the false realities that we've bought into that our experience seems to so validate and trade them in for what God says is true. That's why I love that worship song that's being sung a lot these days. I'm a child of God. And the reason I love it most is because that line that keeps repeating in it, I am who you say I am. That's the reality. I'm who God says I am. I'm not who I say I am from day to day based on my experiences, my desires, my lack of certain desires, my temptations, my struggles, my failures. I'm not who I say I am when I think about things I've done that have hurt people and been destructive and self-destructive in my life. You can be imprisoned by those things. You're not imprisoned by your DNA. You're not imprisoned by what maybe an abusive parent said to you every day growing up. You're not in ho- being held hostage by how so Someone viewed you, maybe a coach who hated you every practice and talked nasty things about you. You're not stuck in any of those things. 
we have this idea that I am who I am and I just need to celebrate who I am and settle right here. And God says, no. No, that, that's not the plan. The plan of redemption, the, the salvage project God put in gear right when Adam and Eve rebelled against them and everything got disintegrated was a reintegration plan that he put into motion and it all depended on the seed that would come from the woman. And that seed was Jesus and he changed everything. And you desperately need Jesus, even if you don't feel like it, even if you're quite happy with the, the, the Christless course you've taken in your life. I'm here to tell you, you desperately need him. He's the only solution. He's the only savior. He's the only one who can bring forgiveness of sins, restored relationship with your creator, an abundant life now and an eternal life to come. He's the only one. Please never settle for where you are right now. We're never stuck where we happen to be, where we think we have to be for the rest of our lives. These ones who are called pure means ethically upright. They're righteous. They're living according to the gospel. The ones who are corrupt, they distort the gospel and it leads to dire consequences in their lives. That's what this means. So when you're, when you're made pure by God, it begins this effect from the inside out that begins a momentum, a domino effect, a sequence of events that leads to growing godliness and go, growing Godwardness and growing purity and growing, growing holiness. It's a battle, which is why this letter's written and this sermon is being preached. That's why we gather, assuming it's a battle. And even if you are a child of God, we need to stay at it. Train ourselves for righteousness because it doesn't just happen. So the battle doesn't end when you become a Christian. In many ways, it begins like you never thought it could exist. But we are in a war every day, and we are no longer, if we're child, children of God, corrupt. And in the same way, those who are impure, it says to them everything is impure. So when they have an impure starting point, everything else they do, even if it has a superficial value, has an impurity to it, like the Levitical code in the Old Testament made things contaminated and impure. Now he's saying these impure people are teaching impure gospels and they are having an impurification effect on everything they're touching and everyone they're teaching. And it's messing up families and it's messing up societies and they have a rationality that's twisted that's what he says their their rational capabilities their minds their rational faculties and their consciences their moral discernment are corrupted They've had their consciences seared and they're corrupted and their mind is thinking foolishness. And so ungodliness is both foolish and immoral and they're, they're doing both because it's always together like that. Please don't ever think it's either right beliefs or right behaviors. Or don't switch that either. I, I hear this all the time. Uh, yeah, all the belief is fine, but it really is while you live. Well, that's a belief actually that's driving you to think that. So, so that's a false dichotomy. In the same way, we can be all about more, more understanding, more information and, and the intellectual pursuit and loving to just know things and it's not settling in our hearts or our daily living and there's a grievous disconnect. God won't have it. None of that is Christian. Neither of those options are Christian. They've had their minds seared. I have a friend who was at a church where one of the prominent leaders at the church, the worship leader actually, um, 
had been in a, a gross, immoral relationship and leading worship week after week, leading worship in the midst of ongoing horrible immorality, destructive sin with a woman involved in the same ministry. And I talked to him about this and I said, how? And he said, our consciences get seared and we have to relearn how to have sorrow for sin. We need to relearn how to grieve over our own sin. We just get numb to it doesn't even bother us after a while and that's a destructive pattern how terrifying to think that we can sin against almighty god and not even notice oh it's a great gift of god when you feel terrible about your sin <laughs> it is rejoice in that thank him for conviction of sin because it's the beginning of the solution listen to john stott like the pharisees these teachers prized external and ritual purity above the true purity, which is internal and moral. It's not only that inward and spiritual purity is paramount, but once we've been made clean inwardly, Jesus said everything will be clean for you. It has that domino effect. This is ritual without reality, form without power, claims without character, faith without works. In this disconnect between belief and behavior so that their profession to know God isn't backed up by their daily living. And it needs to get to daily living. Because it's the gospel of grace, necessarily means then it gets translated in our daily lives. The word work or works appears nine times in Titus. He's very concerned about zealousness for good works and actually working those things out in our daily lives. And we need to be about that. That's why I love so much of this ministry at Grace where the food bank is not just being a bunch of do-gooders. It's gospel-driven, gospel-grounded, gospel-proclaiming ministry that is good works, but with a gospel core to it. Orphan care is that. The Balarams that we get to partner with are that. The reason they start a school for underprivileged kids and work with women in the slums of India who don't even rate a caste, the reason they're adopting a little girl with special needs this year is because they are zealous for good works but grounded in a gospel reality that's taken over in, the, in their lives. It's not just doing good stuff. And it's not just believing the right stuff. It's believing the right stuff that necessarily and naturally leads to good works which means according to God's word. Now, there, there are different kinds of people here this morning. I realize this. There are different kinds of people. There are people who are here this morning, I'm convinced, that think they're Christians, but they're not. I think there are people here this morning who know they're not Christians, and I'm so glad you're here. And there are people who are Christians and are living like they're not. And I know for a fact there are lots of you who are here who are true children of God who are walking faithfully and growing and you look at your life and you see this incredible work of God that becomes a pattern and an example for others. I am so deeply grateful for how many of you I know well enough to know that that's absolutely true. I love that. But we all need to take this to heart. All the kinds of people who are here among the two kinds of people who are here need to take this to heart. You know, I came across these uh, eight traits of a hypocrite and I said, wow, where did I find this? This is really good. And so I Googled it and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I thought, wait, 
Maybe I wrote it. <laughs> so that's possible. I don't know where I got it. It's possible I wrote it. I don't know. But it's good anyway. So here we go. You ready? <laughs> Traits of a hypocrite. His walk doesn't match his talk. He lives to make impressions on others. He's motivated by titles, honors, and respect from others. He focuses on peripheral issues and neglects the weightier things. I read a Beth Moore tweet this week. Apparently she was abused by a man at some point in her life, and she said, my abuser vehemently opposed drinking beer. That's disgusting. We have those kinds of disconnects. Focuses on peripheral issues and neglects the weightier things. He focuses on the outward appearance rather than inward realities. His morality depends on his circumstances. Do you know it's no coincidence there are so many strip clubs around airports? Because men feel anonymous when they travel. Their circumstances so easily dictate their morality. We've got to be different. We've got to be different. Whether your roommate's in the room or not, shouldn't make any difference because God's always there. Seven, he's tough on others and easy on himself. Eight, he lives by his own power for his own glory. Those are traits of a hypocrite. Some of those stung as I read through them because none of us has arrived yet. Paul said he's a chief of sinners and he hasn't attained all this, but he presses on, forgetting what lies behind, and presses on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. We all have tendency to hypocrisy, and when we recognize it in ourselves, we need to repent and run to Jesus, the only solution to any of this. We need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. We desperately need to know Him and not believe all the lies we constantly believe about ourselves and what really matters and what really lasts. We need to live according to God's word, claiming the promises that if we're children of God, we're no longer children of the devil. Listen to 2 Timothy. Understand this. That in the last days, there will be times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Ungrateful, holy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the, the appearance of godliness but denying its power. The appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. But as for you, continue with what you've learned and firmly believed. We're after true religion here. Not no religion, true religion. External practice that's backed up by authenticity, not emptiness. John Stott puts it this way. We have to ask three questions about our religion. Is its origin divine or human? Is it, revela is it revelation or is it just the traditions of men? Is its essence inward and spiritual or outward and formal? And finally, is the result a transformed life or merely a formal creed? Stock concludes this way, true religion is divine in its origin, spiritual in its essence, and moral in its effect. 
So, who are you? What category would you find yourself in this morning? If you have any doubt at all that you're a children of light rather than a child of darkness, that you've been forgiven rather than still bearing your own sins for yourself and the penalty that comes with that, if you have any doubt this morning that you're still walking in darkness, still walking in lies rather than truth and life, you need to know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you'll never get to him until you get to the end of yourself. And I pray God will bring you to the end of yourself. I pray it won't take tragedy in your life or, or, or something horrible to finally get you to the end of yourself. I pray the Spirit of God would save you from that. And today would be the day you hear his voice and you respond to the good news you've been hearing today. There will be people here to pray with you after the service is over. If you have any questions about anything we've been talking about, what the good news really is, how you come to saving faith, ask them. They're ready to answer you and help you understand these things and to pray with you. And I pray that that would happen. If, if you're someone who has become aware of your, your self-deceived state, oh, flee to Jesus. Here's the good news. No one's beyond hope. Even these teachers who he calls these really bad things. And notice, he doesn't call their actions. He calls them defiled. He calls them impure. That's why I'm writing a book, 21 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. And one of them is, love the sinner, hate the sin. There's truth to that. But it leads you to think that sin is just stuff I do. It's just outside of me. The Bible spends a lot of time trying to get you to realize that sin begins in your heart. You know, every time a politician or athlete gets caught cheating, they're all saying the same thing now. It's like they have the same excuse handbook. And the big one now I hear more than any other was, oh, that wasn't me. It's not me. It's not who I am. That wasn't me. No, actually it was. We have a video. It clearly was you, and you, you, weren't, you were doing it very wholeheartedly. It's amazing. That wasn't me. No. Sin is a heart problem. It's a heart condition. It, it, we act according to what our tree is, and now that doesn't mean we cannot so, act out of sorts who, with who we who really are, and that's what I've been trying to encourage us out of, but the fact is we need to own our sin, not just as something out there, but something starting here, and the great news is no one's beyond hope, even these guys. No one is beyond hope. The guy writing this murdered Christians for a living. The Christians, when he became one of them, had a really hard time believing it was real. But it was. And now he writes this letter to us today. He knew he was a chief of sinners, but he knew that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come for those who thought they were just fine. He came for those who knew better, which is all of us. We need to claim the promises of God and realize that Jesus came to save sinners. He died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the pure. He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the undefiled. That makes no sense. He paid the penalty for those of us who were defiled and impure and sinful and unrighteous in his sight. That's the gospel. I pray you take it to heart. Lord, help us. We are a people who are so easily distracted and self-deceived and 
easily impressed with unreality. So please, will you help us by the Spirit's power and according to the Scriptures to see the truth about ourselves, about who you are, about what life is really about, what it means. Lord, I pray for those who've never trusted Christ here this morning that they would be getting to the end of themselves and run to Jesus. Pray for those who are your children who've been living like they're not, that you'd bring them home. You'd bring them to repentance and that they would begin to live according to who you have made them to be. And I pray for those this morning who are walking in the light and in the Spirit. And I pray that they would excel still more and enjoy being your children and freed from sin and that their lives would exhibit that more each day. Lord, we're grateful for hearts set free to worship. Kill any self-righteousness in us as we think about these things. Give us a heart for people who don't know Jesus and I pray we'd just walk across the street and tell them about the one who pulled us out of darkness and into marvelous light. We pray that our zealousness for good works and indeed our good works would be multiplied as we understand the gospel better and that our community would increasingly take notice that something's very different about us. Lord, I thank you for our partners around the world like the Balarams who've decided to live in a really hard place, much harder than Toronto or La Mirada where they left from. And they're fighting the good fight. Lord, I'm grateful for the partnership with them and so many others. Lord, I pray that all our efforts would be works that come from being fit by the gospel of grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.